Well, it's hard to believe that we've been in the building for a year. If uh, you'd have seen the building a year ago, you'd be in agreement with me. But God is good and faithful, and it's good for us. It's been a, a good reminder, I think, for us to think about what it is that really a church should be prioritizing, what's important to a church. As wonderful as having a building is, and new carpet, and beautiful wood panels, and children's church, and things like that, um, there's people, brothers and sisters in Christ, that gather around the world with a lot less, with passionate, fiery hearts for Christ, and we want to just join in their chorus today. And so we pray that, it's, that you're blessed, and that God is magnified through our time today. You know, churches measure success through many different means out there. Money, numbers, the number of people that are attending, the number of programs that are going on within a church. All these things can be used as measuring rods for the success of, of a church. And if the church is doing the right thing and really being faithful to God's Word, we've chosen at North Hills to do it by the mission statement of building a community of faith, hope, and love where Christ is exalted and lives are transformed. And central to the mission statement of this church body in particular is the exaltation of Christ and the body that's gathered around to see this Christ exalted, magnified, and lifted high. And so whether we're big or we're small, or we have this building, or we're out in a parking lot, matters very little. It's the exaltation of Christ, and it's the community that's built around Him. He is the center. If you have no Jesus, you have no church. He is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. And so we gather around every week to look to Him, to worship Him, to sing unto Him. And how do we do this? By proclaiming Christ in all that we do. Every single ministry that North Hills has, we aim and we attempt to run it through the grid of whether or not it's going to help aid in building a community where Christ is exalted and lives are transformed. If it's not going to do that, then we don't want to do it. And so we, the men's ministry, the women's ministry, the children's ministry, the counseling ministry, the Nifty 50 ministry, missions ministry, all of these things are funneling into one central place, and that is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's to exalt him in everything and to see what God does as people gather together to worship him and to make much of him as he changes the lives of those that choose to gather to do so. We proclaim him, after all, it is him who died and rose again. Not a doctrine, not a theology, but a man. The God-man. So we gather together to worship him. I remember it's probably about 15 years ago, I was invited to lunch by a pastor here in town, and it wasn't very long into our lunch, right after, basically right after we got our food, he kind of pops the question, so I hear that you're a Calvinist. 
So I go, okay, I know why he invited me to lunch. And so, as any good Calvinist would say, I say, well, what do you mean by that? I said, if you mean that I believe that John Calvin is the source of my hope, if you believe that I think that John Calvin died for my sins, and that I'm living for the glory of John Calvin, then you are absolutely wrong. I'm a Christian, first and foremost. My hope is in Christ. I believe that Christ died and rose again from the grave. I live for him. He's the purpose. And as long as I am in ministry, he's going to continue to remain the hope of my ministry, the hope of my life, the purpose and the reason for why I exist. And everything that I do, I hope, is unto the praise of his glorious grace. And as long as God has me here, then that's going to be the hope and the purpose and the mission of this church as well. And I think that that's why everybody who's here is here, because we see that this is the goal of what it is that God is calling us to do. The exaltation of Christ in all things. And so I want you guys, if you will, gather together around Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 through 29 this morning as we take a brief break this week from the book of Luke. We want to talk about the heart of church being Christ himself. We see the role of Christ in the life of the believer and thus in the life of the church as well. So Paul would write this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You see what it is that's the goal and the hope and the purpose of the Apostle Paul and what his desire is and his prayer is for this church. And that's because it's been written in Scripture, his desire and prayer, God's desire and prayer for us, for all of his people. It's amazing to me how unpractical the person and the work in Jesus Christ has become in modern day churches today. If you come in and you have problems, people are looking for answers and solutions to their problems. And it's amazing to hear how far removed Jesus is from the answer. The solution to whatever it is that you or I are struggling with. And I think scripture gives us a different picture. Jesus has everything to do with everything you're struggling with and everything that's going on in your life. And the more that we do as a church body to funnel ourselves and focus our aim to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the better off we will be as we see in our text here. You think about it. We came to Christ by the gospel of Christ. By the gospel of Christ, we're being conformed into the image of Christ. And in conformity to the image of Christ, we're being prepared to spend an eternity with Christ. And yet, it's amazing to see how little Christ has to do with many churches and our lives going, that we live every single day. We, we, were, we come to Christ by Christ. 
We're conformed into the image of Christ. We're going to spend an eternity with Christ. Why would, he spend, why would he have such a small role in the life of the believer? He is everything. He has everything to do with everything that, we're, that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. No matter what the issue is that we wrestle with, it is an issue that is in competition with the person of Jesus Christ. Every struggle that you have, every temptation that you face. You're facing a competitor to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the good news is that Christ himself has the power to crush and to do away with all competition. And we look to him to do so. I think of what Paul wrote to the church, the Galatian church in chapter 3, verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you so foolish in these things that you're struggling with, church, that and beginning with the Spirit of Christ dwelling within you and regenerating you, are you now seeking to be made like Christ according to the flesh by some other means? The way from, from conversion to Christ and to conformity of Christ is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our lives are all about Him. They surround Him. And this is what Paul's teaching in Colossians 1, 28-29. He says, Him we proclaim. It is Christ Jesus that He proclaims when He goes to evangelize the city of Colossae. And it's the person and work of Jesus Christ that he continues to put forth as the Christians grow in the conformity to be like Christ. He would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's within a letter that has a, a ton of practical sin issues that are going on within the church and in people's lives. You're talking about gross sexual immorality abuse of apostolic position and gifts and powers, falling under the the teaching of false teachers, misuse of spiritual gifts. I mean, the church in Corinth was at a wreck. And yet Paul found the person and work of Jesus Christ to be very practical and applicable in addressing all of these issues. Him we proclaim, because Christ has something to say and something to do with everything. He would write, Paul would write in Romans 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 36, for from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. When he says he, from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, that means that there's, for the believer, there's nowhere you can go, there's nowhere you can look without Jesus Christ being present and involved. And so if he's present and involved, then it's the greatest good for the believer to live their life for the glory of Christ. Why would we then not proclaim Christ? We want to be a church that proclaims the good news of the message of Jesus Christ. And that is exactly, if I might for a moment shift from talking about proclaiming Christ to actually proclaiming Christ to you, lest I be guilty of not doing what it is I'm saying that we do as a church. 
Paul would write as he's before Agrippa, telling of his conversion in Acts 26, verses 22 through 23. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The death, burial, and resurrection wasn't just a part of the message that Paul proclaimed. It was the message. It, was the, it is the fulfillment. The death, burial, resurrection, the ascension of Christ is the central message of even the Old Testament. When he says, him we proclaim, where is he proclaiming him from? What is he using? What's his curriculum? What's the book? What's the content from which he proclaims Christ? The Old Testament scriptures. He sees, we see, we'll see at the end of the book of Luke, when the disciples are gathered together, before Jesus ascends, Jesus is speaking to his disciples before he ascends, and he says this, and then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. Before he goes, he opens the mind of his apostles, the men who are going to pen the New Testament, to really and truly and rightly understand the Old Testament. And that it all is flowing and pointing towards him. That's where Paul proclaims Christ That's why he proclaims Christ. And that's why it is that we want to faithfully proclaim Christ and all that it is that we do. And we proclaim Christ when we proclaim his death, burial, and resurrection and that all who come to him by faith, he will cast nobody out. That there is life, eternal life in Jesus Christ and only him and him alone. He invites the weary He invites the wicked. He invites the sick. He invites the sinner. We've seen this over and over and over again in the Gospel of Luke. And he embraces them when they come to him by faith. And he loves them and he keeps them to the end. And he lives to intercede and he mediates for the believer still today on our behalf wonderful gift of love that was shown to us in conversion when we came to know Christ is still displayed and poured forth every single day in the life of the believer. If you've not read Jonathan Edwards' little booklet on Heaven is a World of Love, I would encourage you to read it. As I spoke about last Wednesday night, our portion is the Lord of Love. The portion of the believer, the believer's portion in life is the God of love who fills the earth with his love, as we saw in Psalm 119, verse 64. This is the great news. Why would we talk about and proclaim anyone or anything else? Why would we proclaim a program? Why would we proclaim a a particular ministry? 
We proclaim our Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And how does He do that? He proclaims Him warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. The word warn literally means to exhort, to counsel. It's the word that we get. It's our nutheteo, where nuthetic counseling comes from. We're counseling people, and as people come in and they have all a, a myriad of issues that they're dealing with in life, we want to bring people to the point to where they see that Jesus Christ has something to say and something to do with it. And it's not about escaping what it is that's going on in your life. It's about embracing what is going on and bringing it to him. We don't bring it to a kingdom. We don't bring our, our problems to a doctrine. We bring our problems to a person, the God-man himself, full of mercy and hope and grace and peace towards us. It's him we proclaim. As, as Paul counseled believers and churches, he's proclaiming Christ. See what it is that Jesus has to do and say about your problems. Find him to be the source of your hope, the source of strength for you to be able to live in the way that God would call you to live. Watch him provide for you. As, as Seth read in Ephesians 3, 21 today. Warning everyone and teaching everyone. Informing them who Jesus is. Teaching them about what He's done. Teaching them about what He continues to do. Talking about this man that we so affectionately refer to as Lord. And it's in order to present everyone mature in Christ. You see the connection there in verse 28? Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Maturity in Christ comes by proclamation of Christ. Those who are mature in Christ love to hear about Christ. Tell me again, remind me again of the good old rugged cross. Talk to me again. Tell me stories of the good news of Jesus Christ. Remind me of what it is that he does in the Gospels. Tell me again the story of his interaction with the woman who was bleeding all her life and could do nothing about it. Remind me again of the leper that came to him. Remind me again. Tell me the story of the man that was lowered through the roof by his four friends in order to that he might come to Christ and, and receive healing and forgiveness. Tell me again, remind me of the stories of this God of love who fills the earth with his steadfast love. Let's talk about, I'll tell you what, if I'm, if I'm sick and I'm hurting and you ever come to visit me, just talk to me about Jesus. Remind me again of his goodness of his plan, of his power, of his sovereignty, of his wisdom. Give me a place where I can really find some peace and some rest, some true consolation and comfort for my soul. It's found in Christ and in him alone. That's why we talk about him. 
being presented mature in Christ to be like Christ in our affections? Do we love what Christ loves in our character? Are we like character in our Christ, in our service? Do we serve in the way that Christ serves? And in our doctrine, do we understand Christ rightly? Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then we see in verse 29 that this is not just some sort of side hustle for the Apostle Paul. This is not what he does in his spare time when he gets an opportunity to hop on Facebook or Instagram and and jot a few things down, a few thoughts. This composes the purpose for which he lives. So what he says, for this I toil. What do you think of when you hear the word toil? I just think of being out in the hot sun in the middle of the summer doing some back-breaking manual labor. And the day has just begun. I know I still have like seven hours in front of me. Toiling. He says, for this I toil. I toil to proclaim Christ in order to see you mature in Christ. Proclaiming Christ so that people are conformed into the image of Christ is hard work. It takes consistent work, constant application, thinking, desiring, as we're going to see in just a few moments. For this, I toil, struggling. Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He doesn't say, I'm toiling and I'm struggling with all that it is that I have. I'm reaching down as deep as I possibly can to pull out from within me that which I need to be faithful to minister to people. He doesn't say that. That'll never do. That'll never work. That never lasts. That is unsustainable. He says, I struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You ever feel that way? Maybe not in your discipleship of someone else, but just your discipleship of yourself. You struggle and you toil. You see how hard it is to constantly look to Christ. There are so many things that distract us. Individually, and then even as a church, too. Oh, maybe we should do that. Look at what that church is doing. They're really booming. Oh, look at them. That seems to be real effective. And there's always the, the, the distraction, the temptation to be drawn to be doing other things. Paul says that he struggles and he toils with all God's energy that God powerfully works within him to proclaim Christ for people to be conformed into the image of Christ. And the result is a church that worships Christ, sings of Christ, preaches Christ, praises Christ, communes with Christ, is baptized into Christ and has fellowship with Christ. I tell you what, if people, if that's how people would describe our church, that's a win. That's a win in my book. Those people love Jesus. And they love being around one another and talking about Jesus. 
And they like to sing these songs about Jesus. And they like to think about Jesus. And they want to be like Jesus. And they want each other to be like Jesus. I mean, that's, that's a W. That's what I pray we're known for. The practice, Christ, if you, if you still think that Jesus is not that practical, I would encourage you, you know, as one example, the author of Hebrews, after laboring through seven chapters of talking about and warning people the, about the, the potential to drift from Christ, we, we feel it, right? You've been there. You know. The potential for apostasy, as the author of Hebrews would put it. Laboring with the recipients of this letter. I mean, if you were to boil the book of Hebrews down to one short message, it would be that Christ is better. He's better than the sacrificial system. He's a better priest. He's a better mediator. He's a better sacrifice. He's, he's, just, he's just better. He's the best that there is. And he's laboring with these people. And he says in chapter 8, verse 1, I love, I love verses like this because it makes it really simple. Now the point of what we are saying is this. So when you read something like that in Scripture, you should be like on the edge of your chair. The point of what's been written for seven chapters previously is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The point of what we're saying is this. We have Jesus Christ. He's incredibly practical to every situation. So the question is, then how can we begin to grow in our maturity into Christ or to maintain such a work of maturity? And this is where the issue of faith comes in. Faith is not only a, the instrument of our conversion and our salvation, but faith is a lifestyle for the believer. The person who is mature in Christ Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So maturity in Christ is the goal of proclaiming Christ. Those who are mature in Christ live a life of faith. They walk by faith and not by sight. You learn to let go of the things of this world that you hold on to, that are our crutches and provide for us some sense of stability, and you learn to trust the Lord Jesus Christ more and more every day. And as you do so, you find him to be good and faithful and worth more of your trust. One step and one foot in front of the other. And again, the author of Hebrews has something to say about this. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. 13 through 16, and there are four things that I want us to see in this passage that marks the life of someone who's living by faith, who's growing in their maturity in Christ. 
If you're a believer, you should, you should be thinking to yourself, this is what I need. This is what I want. I want to be mature. I don't know anybody. If I were to poll everybody in this room, I would say, do you want to be immature in Christ? I don't know anybody who would say yes. Oh yeah, sign me up. Immaturity. That's the way to go. Everybody would say, yes, I want to be mature. I want to be like our Lord Jesus. Well, it's essential to maturity in Christ as a life lived by faith. Chapter 11 of Hebrews is a wonderful chapter regarding those who have lived a life of faith. You see actually in chapter 11, verse 26, the, the practical application of Jesus Christ, even for Moses. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was able to let go of his position and power and wealth that he had in Egypt because he considered the reproach of Christ more valuable. Talk about practical. But he would write this in chapter 11, verses 13 through 16, and I want us to notice four things and then one reward. Verse 13, these all died, and talking about those who he's written about, primarily Abraham, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Those who live a life of faith look in faith on what is to come. See that in verse 13? Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Those who live a life of faith who want to be mature in Christ look in faith on what is still to come. Those who walk by faith will die in this life never truly satisfied. And that's normative for the believer because this world cannot fully offer you and satisfy you with what it, with what it thinks it can provide. And so you will live a life of faith looking for that which is still yet to come. Verse 14, number two. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Those who walk by faith not only look by faith on what is to come, but they speak in faith on what is to come. You're looking and you see the homeland. You see heaven. You see eternity. And in seeing it, you can't help but speak about it. You talk about that great land. You talk about the celestial city. You talk about that which is still yet to come. And in that speech with one another, we encourage one another to press on, run the race, be faithful, fight the good fight. Don't give up. Continue to press on. Labor like Paul labored, working, toiling, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Apply yourself in that way as you speak about this wonderful kingdom that you behold by faith today, which we have not yet received. Number three, verse 15. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would, have an, they would have had opportunity to return. 
Those who live a life of faith and maturity in Christ not only look at what is to come, not only speak of what is to come, but they think about what is to come. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. If your life is consumed with thinking about your life, it's going to be really hard to speak about that which is to come because you're thinking about that which is here. And so we don't focus on what is here. This is what we've been talking about. This is really the hope of the persecuted church, the hope of the martyrs, that there is, there is something better to come. How do people endure being burned alive at the stake? How do people endure beheadings? How do people endure pain and suffering, rejection? Because that they know that this life is not all that there is. They have their mind set upon something that is still to come. And death is simply the opening of the door and the entrance into that everlasting kingdom of pure joy and love and bliss with Christ. Those who are mature think of what is still to come. And verse 16, number 4, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. The mature in Christ look to what is to come, speak about what is to come, we think about what is to come, and we desire what is to come. The affections are not disconnected from what it is that we see and what it is that we think about and what it is that we speak about. You have such a clear vision of what the kingdom of God looks like, namely the one who inhabits, who's on the central throne in the kingdom of God, our Lord Jesus himself. And there's such an anticipation. There's a desire to be with him. Do, you, do, you, do we really desire to be with Christ? I want to be with him. And it's not only because we get to leave all of this world behind. But it's what it is that we gain when we go to be with Him. Setting our face upon the King of kings and the Lord of lords, dining at His table, dwelling in eternal happiness with Christ. The mature in Christ desire that which is still yet to come. And then the latter part of verse 16, I think, is just a wonderful, wonderful promise. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God is not ashamed. He approves of the one who still is looking and speaking and thinking and desiring of what is still to come. He approves of that. As believers, do we want to do that which pleases the Lord? Well, within, here, within our text here, we have four things that please Him. Looking to Him. Speaking about Him. Thinking of Him. And desiring Him. And He is not ashamed 
to be called our God. For he has prepared a city for us. Isn't that wonderful? I I can't imagine what this city is going to be like. We have pictures and glimpses. I mean, all throughout, from cover to cover of our Bibles, we have, we have glimpses of what this city is going to look like. But still, I don't think we can fully wrap our minds around what it's going to be like to dwell with God. It's going to be, it's going to be incredible. I've visited a lot of cities in my life. I've traveled around the world many times. I've seen a lot of big cities. I've seen a lot of really, really wonderful things. And I'm sure many of you have too. Not one of them can hold a candle to that which still awaits us. I'm looking forward to that day. As we celebrate today what it is that God has done for our body in providing us this building, we are incredibly incredibly grateful for what it is that God has given. But i got to tell you something. I don't look to this building. I don't talk about this building very much. I don't think about the building very much. I don't desire, I don't have like this burning desire for this building. I look for what is still to come. I look for what it is that God is going to do within this building, within the body here, within the people, in our lives, that God will use these four walls and this roof and this floor to do. I look forward to that. I look forward to that which is still yet to come being prized and treasured within the lives and the hearts of the people who gather within this building. That's what I want to talk about. That's what I want to think about. That's what I desire. And I pray that that's what God continues to do within our body as we meet and gather here as often as the Lord will allow us. We're going to, at this time, prepare to take communion together. And we do this every week because it is a, it's a sobering reminder of where our hope comes from. What Christ has done the man, and his sacrifice on our behalf. And if, you, and if you know him by faith, and you're a believer, we invite for you to partake of this time of communion with us. But if you're not a believer, and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, we would ask for you to take this time to consider what it is that he's done. That there is life, there is forgiveness, reconciliation with God, and nobody else. Your sin has eternally separated you from Christ, from God. But in Christ, He offers full pardon, full forgiveness if you would come to Him by faith and confess your sin and trust in Him. This communion table and time is a reminder of that. If you're new here, we take communion together. And so I invite you now, you can get up and grab the elements and return back to your seat. And we'll have some moments, a few moments of prayer, personal prayer and reflection time. And then we will, I will lead us in our communion together.